0: The following audio is from City Rev Church. For more information about City Rev Church, visit us online at cityrev.org. You can join us live Saturday nights at 6 p.m., Sunday mornings at 9, 10, 30, or 12, or you can join us online at cityrev.org. Well, I have with me two kind of conspicuous objects, one you can see and one you can almost kind of see, but I have a... Uh, A wall of Legos. These are Duplo Legos, so they're a little bit bigger than your typical Legos. And I also have with me a golf club over here. This is my golf club here. It's a driver. And uh, in a moment, I'm going to explain why I have these two items up here. But what I want to do is I want to give you here in a bit bit, these two images as ways for you to really connect with the teaching here in Judges chapter 8. We're going to come across two realities here in this chapter That My prayer is that these two really strange, peculiar images that don't really make sense to be put together, a wall of Legos and a golf driver, I want these to stick into your mind and memory so that when moments come where there's fear, when those moments come in life where there's this temptation to feel deflated and to feel defeated like there's no hope and there's no way forward, I want you to remember Legos and a golf club. Not for these things in themselves, but for the powerful truth that I want to show you here in Judges chapter 8. And so I want to dig in here before I start reading here in verse 1, and we get into this conversation about God's purpose and how we can be a people of courage, I want to give you the background of where we're at in the story so that even if it's your first time joining us, you can catch up with where we're at. God has called a man by the name of Gideon to be a leader among his people, to deliver his people out of this oppression they've been experiencing at the hands of this other enemy nation called Midian. The nation of Midian had been plundering Israel for seven years. They were robbing them of their crops. They were murdering some of their people. And so Midian had been completely, completely violent towards Israel, stealing from them. And so Israel was suffering. So God calls this unlikely deliverer, Gideon, This unlikely, the last person you would ever expect. He's weak in so many ways and flawed. And God picks Gideon and says, hey Gideon, I want you to deliver my people. You're going to go ahead and stand as one man against the nation of Midian. And so Gideon goes and does just that and has these moments of weakness where he's unsure and he's doubting and yet God uses him. Last week we talked about this incredible story where Gideon and his 300 men go up against this massive army of tens and tens and thousands, tens of thousands of people. And this small band of 300, the Lord works a miracle and brings victory to Gideon's soldiers, his band of 300, to demonstrate that it's God who wins the battle, not man. And so this battle starts taking place and God is fulfilling this promise in purpose he laid out in Gideon's life. The Midianites are on the run. And so then we find out later on in Judges chapter 7 that the Ephraimites, this other tribe of Israel, they go on and they start pursuing a group of uh, Midianites. And they capture two Midianite princes. These very influential uh, leaders within the nation of Midian. And so they defeat some. And things are on, starting to look as though they're on the up. Things are starting to look like the purpose that God laid out is coming to pass. But then in Judges chapter 8, something's going to take place where opposition rises up. There's opposition that comes from an unlikely source. And Gideon is going to have to deal with it as the leader because the battle isn't over yet. The Midianites still have tens of thousands of soldiers who are encamped. And God has called Gideon to deliver the people from this army. And so Judges 8 starts to outline for us what takes place as this opposition starts to rise up. Look at verse 1 in Judges 8. It says this, Then the men of Ephraim said to Gideon, What is this that you have done to us, not to call us when you went to fight against Midian? And they accused him fiercely. And Gideon said to them, what have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Abiezer? God has given into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger against him subsided when he said this. So here in Judges 8, The story picks up with the Ephraimites, that same tribe of people that went and did battle after the initial battle and they took out those two princes of Midian. The Ephraimites come back over to Gideon and they're upset. In fact, the language used here describes they they are heated. They are fiercely angry at Gideon. And the reason they're angry is because Gideon didn't include them in the initial call to arms. When Gideon started to gather an army, he called from different tribes, but he did not call from the tribe of Ephraim. And Ephraim's upset. They wanted to be a part of that initial call and they're offended that they weren't included in such a call. And so they start accusing God's chosen leader. And Gideon responds with this diplomatic, gentle response where he starts buttering them up and says, wait a minute, listen, you guys are so wonderful. Your grape harvest is so much better than my clan's grape harvest. And uh, listen, what have I done in comparison to you? God gave these princes into your hands and what have I done? And so Gideon gives this really diplomatic, smooth, suave answer to these guys and they hear about how wonderful they are. The Ephraimites receive, yeah, our grape harvest this is better than yours. And yeah, we did take out those two princes. And so they respond and say, okay, Gideon, we're good. And things move on. Odd episode. Hold on to that thought. We'll get back to that here in a moment. Look at what happens next. Verse four. Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over. He and the 300 men who were with him, exhausted yet pursuing. So he said to the men of Sukkoth, this is a town in Israel, just over the Jordan. He says to the men of Sukkoth, please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me for they are exhausted and I am pursuing after Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. And the officials of Sukkoth said, are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hand that we should give bread to your army? So Gideon said, well then, when the Lord has given Ziba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. Those are fighting words right there. And from there he went up to Penuel and he spoke to them, to this other city. He goes to Penuel and he spoke to them in the same way, asking for bread. And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Sukkoth had answered. And he said to the men of Penuel, when I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. So envision the scenario, Gideon and his men, they're starving. They're hungry. Now in antiquity, think about it. There's no 7-Eleven to stop and get, get a snack, to get a, you know, a hot dog or a, a taquito and some water or whatever. There's, there's none of that. You're in the wilderness, So just as important as having good battle tactics and to be militarily brilliant, another important factor is just to have wise logistics in packing supplies. And so they get to this town in Israel and they think, great. Here I've got Sukkoth and Penuel. These are these two cities. Uh, I can ask them for bread. This is going to be great. Okay, great. I'm so glad I'm here. And so Gideon goes, he asks them for bread and they reject Gideon. They say, no, we're not going to give you bread. In fact, it's it's worse than that. They don't just say, no, we're not going to give you bread. They taunt Gideon. The way they respond to Gideon's request for bread as they see this exhausted band of soldiers. Again, they are going to defeat Midian, the nation that's going to go out now to try and defeat, to take down this enemy nation, the Midianites. And here is Gideon asking just for something simple, asking for bread. And these people in Sukkoth and in Penuel, they say, no. And they say, are the hands of these kings, show me, where are they at? Are they in your hands now that we should give you bread? Not only do they not believe that Gideon will defeat these two kings and bring them into his hands, but they're taunting Gideon about it. So Gideon responds and says, okay, okay well, when the Lord delivers these kings into my hands, I'm coming back here and I am going to mess you up. He says, I'm gonna take thorns and teach you a lesson. And he says, I'm gonna tear down this tower in this city. So Gideon warns them of this and these two cities say, fine, go on ahead. And they let Gideon go. Next, the story continues and Gideon goes on. Look what it says next in verse verse 10. Now Ziba and Zalmunna were in kar- Karkor with their army, about 15,000 men, all who were left of all the army of the people of the east, for there had fallen 120,000 men who drew the sword. And Gideon went up to Nobah by the way of the tent dwellers, east of Noba, and Jogbeha, and attacked the army, for the army felt secure. And Zeba and Zalmunna fled, and he pursued them and captured the two kings of Midian, Zeba and Zalmunna, and he threw all the army into a panic. Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from the battle by the ascent of Ares, and he captured a young man of Sukkoth and questioned him. And he wrote down for him, all the officials and the elders of Sukkoth, 77 men. And he came to the men of Sukkoth and said, behold, Zeba and Zalmuna, about whom you taunted me, saying, are the hands of Ziba and Zalmuna already in your hand, that we should give bread to your men who are exhausted? And he took the elders of the city, and he took thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them he taught the men of Sukkoth a lesson. And he broke down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city." Then he said to Ziba and Zalmunna, where are the men whom you killed at Tabor? They answered, as you are, so were they. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. And he said, they were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. So he said to Jether, his firstborn, rise and kill them. But the young man did not draw his sword, for he was afraid because he was still a young man then Zeba and Zalmunna said rise yourself and fall upon us for as the man is so is his strength and Gideon arose and killed Zeba and Zalmunna and he took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of their camels so to sum up what we just read Gideon leaves Penuel and he leaves Succoth and he goes over and he captures he defeats his army defeats these men the midianites We don't know how God provided for them. They left hungry because those cities wouldn't feed them, but God ends up providing for them some way and they go on and they defeat this army. These kings are captured and the soldiers are sent into a panic. They freak out and so they bring these two kings back and Gideon goes over to these two cities and he starts to tell them, about what he did. Remember how I said earlier how when these kings are delivered into my hand, as the Lord has said, I would come back. And so we read this really violent turn of events where Gideon goes and the text says he teaches them a lesson with thorns in Sukkoth. Now, at minimum, that means he tortures them and severely wounds them. This could also be implying that he killed them. We know for certain in Penuel, Gideon goes on and he kills the men of the city who had betrayed him, who had said, no, we're not going to show any hospitality to you and give you just some basic bread. Stay exhausted. And so these individuals, they end up being killed by Gideon, and Gideon goes on, and he captures these two kings, and we find out that this isn't just something that is God's calling on Gideon's life, but this is something that is immensely personal to Gideon. See, these two kings, Zeba and Zalmunna, had killed Gideon's brothers it was personal for him. And he says, if you hadn't had killed the if you if you hadn't had killed my brothers, I wouldn't kill you. And he asks his firstborn son perhaps to humiliate them, this young man to kill these two kings and he's too afraid to do it and so Gideon ends up killing them himself. Now this is a puzzling story. There's violence There's betrayal as the men of Penuel and Sukkoth show tremendous, just absolute hatred towards Gideon and what he set out to do, to turn their backs on him. And Gideon punishing them. I mean, this is a really bizarre, puzzling story. And one of the things that we often talk about here is we love to read the scripture. So we encourage our church that, we we need to be reading through the Bible and we even have this feature on our app. It's called Word Habit. If you go to the City Rev app, you can be a part of our Word Habit feature. You just subscribe to that right there on the app and every morning you'll be sent a chapter of the Bible and here's what's gonna happen. There are gonna be some days where as we're reading through books of the Bible, you come across passages like this that, I mean, honestly, you read a passage that is full of betrayal and violence and, and all of this and you're wondering, okay, well, what does that mean for me? What do I do in light of what this just taught me? And a helpful question for us to ask whenever we have one of those moments is to simply ask, what does this passage teach me about God? What is this revealing to me about what God is like and how God operates? Because we can get so caught up in the details and look so closely at the individuals that we miss the bigger picture at times. So let's zoom out for a moment. I want to read Judges chapter 6. This is earlier in the story. This is God's initial calling to Gideon. This is what Judges chapter 6 says, starting in verse 14. It says this, The Lord turned to Gideon and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you, Gideon, And he said to him, Gideon's response, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, my tribe, and I'm the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, but I will be with you and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. So Judges 6 lays out for us Gideon's calling where the Lord makes clear what he's going to do. God says, Gideon, you are going to lead my people against the Midianites. It's going to happen. I'm going to use you, Gideon. So God gives Gideon this instruction. He gives him his purpose, what he's going to do. And what we just read in Judges chapter 8, full of all of these really bizarre twists and turns, that as they're three quarters of the way towards fulfilling what God said they would do, there's this opposition that rises up. Ephraim, his own family, his own nation, starts accusing God's, anointed leader starts going against what God had wanted to do. They accuse him and then these two cities rise up in opposition to Gideon and his army and what they were going to do. In their minds, these two cities might as well have just said, go off and die. And so what we read here though, was nonetheless, God fulfilled his purpose. Gideon and his small army of 300 goes and they finish the task that God laid out for them. The Midianites were defeated. The kings who had murdered Gideon's own brothers as they plundered their harvests, these kings had been defeated and taken out. We can miss, if we aren't careful, just the big picture, the big statement, that right here, this is God doing what he said he would do. So right here, I want to give us Two obstacles that often come in the way of God's purpose being realized. Two forms of opposition to God's purpose that I I believe you're going to recognize because you've experienced them before. You've walked through them before. And we see them here in this passage, but we can't miss the simple fact that God's purpose will prevail. So here's the first thing I want you to write down in your notes. Take this down. Number one God's purpose will prevail in spite of human opposition. God's purpose will prevail in spite of human opposition. Think about what happened in verses one through nine. Three different groups of people stand opposed to what Gideon was doing. At first, it was the Ephraimites and Gideon is afraid. I mean, Gideon's confronted with this powerful tribe. The Ephraimites were a powerful tribe at the time with tremendous influence and large numbers. So Gideon's now being accused by them. They're opposing what Gideon is doing, accusing him fiercely. Then the men of Penuel and Succoth rise up and wish them dead, taunt them. They oppose what God was trying to do. And yet still, in spite of all of that, we don't know exactly how, but God winds up providing for this army of soldiers. He meets their needs somehow and they go off into battle and they do what God said they would do. They defeat the Midianites. And so this idea that God's purposes prevail in spite of human opposition is so important. I want you to envision this for a moment. Uh, Imagine with me a 10,000 pound wrecking ball. I mean, massive, bigger than what could probably fit on this camera screen, okay? Uh, A 10,000 pound wrecking ball, the kind of wrecking ball that's used to just level buildings, skyscrapers, okay? Okay. So this wrecking ball, picture it, and and if you could just envision what a wrecking ball looks like as it's swinging, a wrecking ball doesn't even need to travel very fast. I mean, it could just be moving, gliding delicately at a steady pace, but because of its sheer force, it packs so much power, it can bring down the most sturdy, large structures imaginable. So imagine for a moment that a building was set to be destroyed and a 10,000 pound wrecking ball is being prepared to be flung at this building so that a new building could be put in its place. And there's a group of people who say, you know what, we like this old building. We don't want a new building. We stand opposed to what you're doing. And so they come up with a plan. They say, okay, let's get together and let's build some Legos. Okay, let's stack them up together and make a giant Lego wall. And what we're going to do is we're going to stick this Lego wall right in front of that giant wrecking ball to protect the building and show them how we can stand against what they intend to do. Now that imagery in your mind, I mean, if you could just picture what would happen to these poor little sunny smiley face Legos, I mean, it would be a sad day for a wall of Legos if they stood in between a wrecking ball and a building. I mean, there's no chance. They can design all they want. They can spend all day, all week long building this massive Lego tower, but there is nothing that's gonna get in the way of that wrecking ball. See, God has purposes that he has expressed. And when God says he's going to do something, he does it. God's purposes will stand and they'll prevail. And though human beings may try and plot against those plans... Though human beings might try and build our little opposition to keep us, to protect us from experiencing the purpose that God has for us. They stand no shot in thwarting God's purposes. You see, these people in these cities that were opposing what God was doing through Gideon, these individuals, they were accountable for their actions. They were responsible for their absolute uh, hatred and lack of faith in the Lord and rejection of God's chosen deliverer Gideon. They were so afraid of the Midianites and that they might be punished for helping these, this group of 300 in their minds after the Midianites defeated them that they said, no, we're not giving you anything. And yet these individuals, though accountable and responsible for their own decisions, don't miss it. God is still Sovereign. He's still in control. He will accomplish the purpose he set forth. God said he would raise up Gideon to stand as one man to defeat the Midianites. And that's precisely what God did. I love this imagery in Psalm 2 that describes how God's purpose works and what God's relationship to human opposition looks like sometimes. Look at Psalm 2 verses 1 through 4. The psalmist asks the question, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth, they set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision." I love this imagery here. It describes these people of power, these human beings who have power, these kings and rulers who are conspiring and coming up with these plans to try and oppose God's purposes. And the characterization here, the personification that's used in Psalm 2 of what the Lord is like in response to their conspiring against Him is God is seated. Note, it says He's sitting in heaven, He's not pacing. He's not wondering what's going to happen next. He's not concerned or anxious. No, he's seated and settled in his throne. And it says he's laughing. Those who would try to oppose his work and his purposes are building with child's toys. And his purpose will move forward. It will go to pass. And God will accomplish what he said he would do. I mean this is Gideon's story. Gideon is called by God to deliver this people. The people of Israel from Midian. And the first episode that takes place after that is Gideon's own hometown. The men of his own city trying to kill Gideon. I mean, opposition to the purposes of God is not new. I mean, this is since the very beginning, since the Garden of Eden. There's always opposition to God's purpose. There's always those who would stand opposed, but notice there's a distinction. You can oppose God's purpose, but you can't thwart it. You can oppose, you can try and stand against, you can build your Lego towers, but that ball is coming through. God's purpose will come to pass and what he says he's going to do, he will do. This is what happened in his life and this is what's happening in our lives. There are moments where there might be some, maybe even we ourselves, who might stand opposed to God's purpose. But take courage in this. God He's sovereign, he's in control, he's greater, he's above all of it. There's nothing that could happen on this earth. There's nothing that would catch him off guard or surprise him. He is seated and he's ruling and reigning. God's purpose will prevail in spite of human opposition. Here's the second thing I want you to note from this passage. Number two, God's purpose will be fulfilled through flawed people. God's purpose will be fulfilled through flawed people. It's just a simple observation. It's nothing really radical or new. But just look with me at this, the way that this passage concludes. Ziba and Zalmunna, these two kings. We find out, really, in this latter section of Judges chapter 8, that this was a personal thing for Gideon. He has this dialogue with these two kings, and he makes the statement, if you hadn't have killed my brothers then I I wouldn't kill you right now. I would save you right now. What's that communicating to us? That means that, yes, for certain, Gideon is acting on the purpose and calling that God laid out for him. God told him to do this. This people had been oppressing Israel, and so it's Gideon's job as God's appointed judge to stand and be God's instrument, his vessel of judgment on this enemy nation that had been plundering them. But the fact that Gideon says, if you would have just saved my brothers, I I wouldn't kill you right now. And then he goes on and asks his firstborn son, a boy, to kill these two kings so as to humiliate them in the way, in the manner in which they die. I mean, this is, yes, for sure, Gideon acting on God's calling, but it's also likely motivated out of some vengeance. This is personal to Gideon. Now, all throughout this passage, it's difficult to pin down, like, is Gideon in the beginning of Judges chapter 8 motivated out of pure intentions and how he's just giving this gentle answer to the Ephraimites? Is he just so humble that he's talking about how they're so much greater than he is? Is this him being, you know, just kind and gracious to people who are accusing him fiercely with wisdom? Maybe. Or is it him buttering them up with flattery out of self-preservation? Maybe. All throughout this passage, we're not really sure about Gideon's motivations. It's probably true that like every other human being, Gideon's motivations are mixed. There's some good, there's some bad. Some of it is God honoring. This is the purpose God laid out for me. And some of it is, this is personal. These people messed with my family. Some of it is acting out. I mean, the The punishment that he inflicts on these two cities. I mean, it's hard for us to hear that. It almost sounds excessive. Like Gideon has just been controlled. Sure, he's been betrayed. Sure, they showed tremendous contempt for the Lord's appointed judge. But it's hard to read this passage and not see Gideon. Gideon has flaws. We don't need this chapter alone to come to that conclusion. We've already read about in Gideon's story. Gideon has some issues. He's constantly afraid. He's in constant need of God's help. His faith is constantly struggling. And God patiently works in Gideon's life. God accomplishes his purpose through flawed people. And that's good news because flawed people are all that there are. That means that God can use you. So this is where I want you to, just for a moment, think about a golf club. This is, uh, this is my golf club. This was a hand-me-down. A uh, generous friend gave this to me. They had a newer set of clubs, and so they gave me this uh, as a part of a set of clubs. And I have played golf a grand total of three times, which means I am really bad. Like, really, golf is one of those sports that you start and you are so bad, it's really discouraging. Anyway, so I, I, I've played this. I've probably, like, done more damage to this club I mean, it still works. It's great. I've probably done more damage to this club in like the few times I've played with it than in however long this individual had these clubs. But anyways, this this is a a, a driver. But I want you to envision for a moment that I had the privilege of getting to play with a professional golfer. And I thought to myself, okay, I'm going to play against a professional golfer. And so if there's any chance for me to do it, I think to myself, I say, okay, what if I get like the most expensive High technology clubs available on the market. I want to show you one such example of a club. This is my driver. Here's a different driver. This is the Hanma, I believe. The golfers who know what what this stuff is all about are probably making fun of me right now. But here's what it's called. It's called the Hanma Berries Five Star Driver. Okay. With $4,500, you can have this golf club. Okay. Now, this club, not only is it like the best technology, but it's also inlaid with 24 karat gold. So... I don't know why you would need gold in a golf club, but there you go. And so you can get a whole set of those types of clubs and spend tens of thousands of dollars on golf. So imagine I said to a professional golfer, hey, I'll play you in a round of golf, but here's the deal. To make it even, you have to play with my hand-me-down clubs that work. They're functional, but I get to play with the Tens of thousands of dollars worth of highest technology, best golf club available on the market. And it's plated in gold, so I'll feel good about myself as I swing them. Now, if we played that scenario out, I would lose so badly. I mean, I I would lose so badly. They would be done hours before I finish like the 10th hole. Every single time I lose that scenario with the highest technology available to me, the best clubs on the market, doesn't matter. A a golfer who knows what they're doing, a professional will beat me every time, even with my hand-me-down clubs. See, here's what we know to be true. And you know this to be true. The hands that are holding the club. The hands whose power and skill are responsible for directing the club and moving the club and giving force to the club, they matter far more to the outcome than the actual condition of the club itself. You see, when it comes to being used in God's purposes, I want you to hear me, followers of Jesus, Christians, listen closely. Remember whose hands you're in. Remember who has you in his hands whose power and skill and wisdom and design is behind you. And so even though your club might be dinged up, even though your life you've maybe messed up, you have flaws, welcome to the club. So do all of us. We're flawed people, broken people, just like Gideon. Maybe you deal with fear. You're constantly afraid. Listen, God, if you are in Christ, God has you in his hands and he is able to work his purpose through you. You're the vessel, he's the one who's providing the power. This is what God wants to do in us. See Gideon, this flawed tool in the hands of a perfect father is used by God to accomplish this great purpose and provide deliverance for God's people. In Hebrews chapter 11, Gideon is named in this list of the faithful in the Old Testament. And Gideon's faith in the Lord is celebrated because through his faith in the Lord, he conquered this great enemy nation. And we read that in Hebrews 11, and then you go back to, he- to Judges chapter 6 through 8, and you read about Gideon's story. And I mean, sure, he did great things, God did great things through him, but I mean, Gideon was flawed. Every person in the Bible, until you get to Jesus, is a flawed individual. In the hands of a perfect God. And God works powerfully through them. And what's so beautiful about following Jesus is we have God's spirit in us. And as we take heed of Jesus, our master teacher, our Lord, our Savior, as we follow him day by day, he makes us more like him. And so he refines us and reshapes us. And what Jesus does is he starts to make our heart more like his heart. And so that we position ourselves so that we can better be used by the Lord for his purposes. But don't make any mistake. Don't make a mistake to think that just because we start growing and becoming more like Jesus, like, like our, our lives are being more, more marked by his character, by his values, by his heart, That doesn't mean that now we deserve the glory for being so awesome. No, God is still the one who's empowering it all. Without someone to swing it, no matter how high of a technology golf club, without someone to empower the ball and direct it, it just lies there. God works through flawed people. He fulfills his purpose through flawed people and in Jesus Christ We become increasingly like him and become more and more fit to be used in his kingdom. But don't miss it right now, where you're at, worn, beaten down, feeling discouraged, God can use you. God wants you to participate in his purposes in the world. And so let's talk a little bit about courage for a moment. Let's talk about this idea of courage because God has made it clear what he's going to do in the world, he's given us his purpose. See, way back in the book of Genesis, God told a man named Abram. He said, Abram, from your family, I'm going to make this great nation. And from this nation that Gideon was a part of in the lineage of, from this great nation, all nations of the earth are going to be blessed through you, Abram. That's my purpose. You fast forward and you read in the book of Psalms about prayers being offered and songs being written that describe how the nations will be the inheritance of the people of God. That all the nations of the earth will be glad in the Lord. That the nations, the peoples, will flock to God's throne and bring praise and worship to him. In the book of Habakkuk, the prophet in chapter 2 describes a day, envisions a day, where the earth will be full of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That God's glory will so cover the earth so thoroughly... It's like the waters that cover the sea in all of its fullness. And then Jesus Christ comes, God in the flesh, and Jesus communicates and says, I have come and I will build my church from every nation, tribe, and tongue. I am building my gathering, my family of faith from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And the gates of hell, no matter how hard they might stand opposed to me, no matter what they might do, they will not stand against me. And Jesus, revealing himself to the Apostle John in the book of Revelation, John sees a day when the purpose of God is fully realized. The day we're pointing towards and longing for when the the heavens and the earth will meet. When God will restore and renew all things. When brokenness and pain and suffering and tears will be done away with and the perfect will come. When we'll be in God's presence forever, united under King Jesus. In an eternity with God, flourishing and thriving in God's perfect peace. That's the purpose that God said is coming. And what God says he will do, he will do. And we look out in our world and we see what's taking place. And especially for those brothers and sisters in Jesus who have been following Jesus for decades, we look out at our world and if we see the, the things that are happening today, it's so discouraging and tempting to think it, it just feels like we're going in the wrong direction. I, I hear what, what all of that says. I, I hear that vision of what God is going to do in the future, that purpose. But I look at, at the world today and it seems like we're going in the opposite direction. It feels like we're going We're going in the polar opposite way. How could this be? And I I don't want to minimize that at all. There's real suffering and real pain. There is serious opposition to the purposes of God. And it often feels like those who stand opposed to God have all of the authority and power. They're the ones who are winning the battle. But let me just offer you some perspective for a moment. Let me just lay this before you. The testimony of scripture. The promise of God. When people stand opposed to the purposes of God. The true perspective is that this is what they are. That opposition to God's purposes is a small little wall of Legos. In comparison to the one who is bringing forth in power His message of reconciliation, his message of peace, the good news of Jesus Christ that is advancing the kingdom of God. We don't need to be discouraged. Take heart. God will accomplish his purpose. Maybe for you, what overwhelms you is the fact that you feel like you've just blown it so many times. Maybe for you, what you struggle with is that you've just, whether it's your past or your present, you've got some scars. Maybe some things that were of no fault of your own and then other things that were directly your fault. Things that you've done, choices you've made that you're living in the consequences of right now. Maybe that's you and because you're in that place, the enemy's gonna wanna come to you and say, you see, how could God use you? Wanna introduce the idea in your mind, you're you're too far gone. No one would want you, let alone God. How would God use you? And what I just want to lay before you is that you're in the hands of one who is mighty and powerful, one who is able. You're in faithful hands, that no matter how dinged up, no matter how worn down you might be, you are not too far gone. God works his purpose through flawed people. He's able to do this, he can do this in your life. Take heart. The question isn't, is God's purpose going to be realized in our world? That's for certain. He's going to do his purpose. He's going to do his work. The question is, what kind of participants will we be? Will you be on the sideline? Will you be waving from afar as those who are getting active in advancing the kingdom of Jesus, being ambassadors of love and joy and peace being proclaimers of the greatest news in the world, telling others about the the salvation that's found in Jesus, going to our workplaces in this city, representing the kingdom values that Jesus lays out for us? Will we be participants in that kingdom or will we choose to stay on the sideline? Whether because of fear of the opposition or because we believe the lie that we're too flawed to be used by God. I want to invite you today to step in to that purpose. Step in to what God is doing here in our city and around the world. He's at work. Even when it feels like we're going the wrong way, God is still seated and he's working his plan. You see, God can fulfill his purpose through flawed people, because a flawless person has already come. The reason we can say that with boldness and confidence that God can use flawed people is because the flawless one has come and has accomplished for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And what he does is he shares his perfect record with us. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has come to earth. And he, unlike all of us, has lived a perfect life. In order to stand in God's presence, we need perfection. We need perfect holiness, perfect purity. And only Jesus meets that requirement. And though Jesus was perfect in every way, he's sentenced to death on a cross. And he dies in our place. He takes our guilt and our sin and our shame. He dies for it. Takes the penalty on. He's buried in a grave. And three days later, Jesus rises up from death. He ascends into heaven and he promises to one day return. And by faith in Jesus, we have this moment where we trust in him and say, Jesus, take my sin. I admit I need a savior, take my shame and my guilt. I trust you with it. And we receive from Jesus the gift of his righteousness, the gift of his perfect record so that God sees us with the perfection of Jesus we're in jesus we're hidden with christ in god and that's the offer that i i give to you today to put your trust in the flawless one to trust in jesus by calling upon him as your savior and lord see what would it look like in the entire history of the world and. The history of the Bible where there's flawed leader after flawed leader after flawed. What would it look like if a flawless one came? It's exactly who Jesus is. He's the one we've longed for. He's the one your soul needs. And I wanna invite you to trust in him right now. Would you bow your heads, close your eyes. Let's close in a moment of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you that your purpose is sure. Lord, we don't have to wonder if you're still in control. We don't have to cower in fear thinking the opposition is too great. We don't have to stick on the sidelines thinking we can never be used by you, Lord. You, you are far greater. And so Lord, I pray right now for those who their moment right now, what needs to happen is they need to trust in you to call out to you as Savior. And so Lord, I pray right now that you would give them faith, that you would open up their hearts to see the incredible provision you've given us in Jesus. And so, Lord, right now, I pray that they would call out to you. In fact, if that's you, just call out quietly to God in your own heart. Just say, God, today I need you. Every day I need you. Forgive me. Jesus, I believe in you. I trust in what you've done for me. Restore me in my relationship with God. Make me new. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for all that you've done for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if that's a decision that you made today to put your trust in Jesus as your savior, I wanna invite you right now to go to cityrev.org faith. We're also putting the link in the chat. We want you to go there and click on that link. There's a short form that you can fill out. It'll take you a few seconds to fill out and here's what's gonna happen. If you fill that out, we'd love to send you a Bible. We'd love to put a Bible in the mail, send it your way so that you can, like we've been talking about all day, we can spend time in God's word. You can grow in your faith. And so go ahead and go to cityrev.org slash faith. And we'd love to connect with you in that way and celebrate this moment where you've passed from death to life, where Jesus has made you brand new. Well, we're gonna continue our time of worship through song. And so I wanna invite you, wherever you're at to get ready to go ahead and join us as we sing. Thanks for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at cityrev.org.